Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Yes, it's another episode of Lost in Science. It is half an hour or thereabouts, roughly, of science on your radio device or your listening portal. My name is Chris, and boy howdy, we love it talking to our audience. And recently we got a bunch of questions from someone calling himself Wise Guy, may or may not be his real name, all, all physics related, and it is my honour today to, to try and answer those questions. Well, that's... Good. I'm glad you're here to answer these questions. I'm also glad you're here to answer those questions, Chris, because, yeah, I think I have a feeling they're going to be fairly physics-related. They're going to be fairly physics-related. I think Wiseguy is a bit of a fan of physics. Um, so, yeah, we're going to just uh, uh, tackle some some physics questions. I just want to really say one thing about physicists, though, because people do think physicists know everything. Is that why you're looking at us and shaking your... Uh, That's right, <laughs> pointing your finger at us. Pointing your finger at us like you might well, know actually, everything about physics. Well, actually, physicists... physicists <laughs> well, I just want to say, I just want to say that... Um, remember recently there was a controversy with the genetically engineered babies in China? Yes. yes. Um, the creator of which may or may not be under house arrest? Yeah, well, he, he went missing. Well, he's, he's in a apartment at the university, apparently, oh, and right, he claims okay. that it's, it's totally fine. He's there under their protection, and okay. he can free, leave at any time. He just chooses not to. Anyway, um, okay. I want to point out that that guy is a physicist. So <laughs> so why was he genetically modifying well, he's babies? He's a biophysicist, but oh, okay. physicists have this kind of thing, and they can think it just waltz into any other discipline and know everything. And I just want to put this in the context of physicists don't know everything. So I want to get that on the record. Oh, you're so humble, Chris. All of us other scientists know that. (laughs) (laughs) We still know more than you. Anyway, Stu, what have you got? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm talking about biology today. I'm talking about a project, which is a bit of a good news story, hopefully, um, about trying to put some wild animals back into the wild. Um, and nice. try and remove feral animals and put in uh, indigenous animals back into their ecosystems to help get them back to the state, you know, to the state they were in pre-European settlement. So that's uh, hopefully a good news story. That sounds like a worthy project, something that's uh, a good transition that they're doing there. And speaking of transitions, let's transition now to Claire. Yes, well, um, that's a very important word. I'm actually going to be talking to Alanta Colley, um, Alanta Colley comedian, science communicator and all-around excellent person. She's been on the show a couple of times before, um, but she's going to come and talk to us on Lost in Science this week about her role as the ambassador for the Transitions Film Festival, which is happening in Melbourne and in Sydney um, over the next couple of weeks. So it's all about sustainability, environmental sustainability, innovation, big ideas, what the future is going to look like for humankind. Excellent. Future is coming to you at a cinema near you. On with the show. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and we are answering, a, I think, nine physics questions from 
Mr. Wise Guy. That's right. Nine questions. Yeah, yeah. And now Claire is going to be reading out the questions. We're going to try and get through these nine questions in the time we have allotted. So we'll see how we go. All right, Chris, are you ready for your first question? I am ready for my first question. How are quarks arranged inside a nucleon? Now, this is an excellent question. Now, now, of course, nucleon refers to protons and neutrons, which are the particles that make up a nucleus. Mm-hmm. Right, and yep. each of them is made out of three quarks. I think that's the correct pronunciation. Well, that's, that's, um, that's good to know as well. Yeah. Now, it's, it's interesting to think how you join like three little tiny things together, but we're talking about like quantum particles and quantum physics and how all that works. So a lot of you are probably familiar with atoms. Yeah. yeah and chemistry. Yes. And so atoms have like electrons tightly bound around the nucleus and they're orbiting the nucleus, but they don't like just in like a little circular orbit. They're kind of an electron cloud, aren't they? That then forms these weird shapes. They have energy shells and this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's basically what's going on inside a nucleus and inside a nucleon itself. So the quarks are there. They're they're jiggling around, but they're all kind of a fuzzy. It's a fuzzy ball, but it's much more tightly bound than an electron is to an atom. We're talking about the strong nuclear force, which is much, much stronger. A lot of the energy that makes it up is in the the binding force that holds it together. There's like gluons as well as quarks, and there's virtual quarks, this kind of stuff. It's all this kind of fuzzy mass that's very held tightly together. And it's very strong. Apparently, um, there was some recent research that showed that the pressure inside a proton is about a million trillion trillion times the strength of Earth's atmospheric pressure or 10 times the pressure inside a neutron star. There you go. Interesting fact. Well, that um, leads on to question number two. How are the nucleons arranged inside a nucleus? Well, if you do the mass, it's basically a similar kind of thing. They're held tightly, again, by the strong nuclear force. They're bound in. But because you often get more nucleons and they can get, have different higher energy levels, nuclei do have like energy states and shells like uh, electrons around an atom. And this is where a lot of nuclear interactions come in. A nu- nucleus can be in an excited state where some of the nucleons are a bit further out and they can collapse back in and lose energy. All right, question three. Why are solitary neutrons unstable and yet inside nucleus stable? This is another good question. A neutron is a neutral particle uh, left on its own. As is pointed out in the question, it will decay. It will um, give off an electron and turn into a proton. So a nu- mm. basically a neutron decays into a proton. But inside a nucleus, yeah, it is stable. And this is because when you're looking at um, a spontaneous process like decay, essentially it's things moving from a high energy state to a low energy state. So for a neutron on its own, going, turning into a proton is a lower energy state. But when you look at it inside a, a nucleus, then you have to look at the, the whole basically property of that nucleus together. And one of the reasons we have neutrons inside nuclei is because if you had just protons, they would fly apart because the electrostatic force between them would push them apart. So it actually works to have a few neutrons amongst the protons. And so if one of those neutrons would turn into a proton, then it would be actually a high energy state because that's to try and hold itself together against the electric force. Okay, question four. What is the nature of charge? This question doesn't really have much of an answer. Charge is just like a property of particles. When you're talking about electric charge, for instance, it essentially is some particles interact with the electromagnetic force. Those have a a charge and it comes in one unit because an electron has a charge of negative one. You know, electrons come in discrete numbers. You can't have half an electron. Although quarks do have like third charge. They have like a fractional charge. So really, I guess you could say electron has a charge of minus three and then quarks have a mass of like one or two. But, you know, we don't count it that way. Okay. So question five, why are there only two to three types of charges? You're doing very well, by the way, can I just say? And I hope that doesn't sound patronizing at all. (laughs) It's all right. It did. Okay. Um, (laughs) 
So, okay, the, the types of charges relate to the fundamental forces. So we have, uh, we won't look at gravity, but we have your basic force, you have the electromagnetic force, you have the weak nuclear force, and you have the strong nuclear force. So oversimplify things greatly, the electromagnetic force, as I said, operates on charged particles, and it's like one type of charge. The weak nuclear force, it essentially has two charges that, ex- that it exchanges things between, so it's a different type of charge, but you have like an electron is one type of charge and a neutrino is another type of charge and the weak nuclear force is the interaction between electrons and neutrinos or between up and down quarks. Okay? <laughs> um, the strong nuclear force is, um, it relates between three different types of charges. Let's see, um, the red, green and blue they're called because they ran out of ideas. and Ran out of numbers. And... Ran out of numbers. Mm. And so it transforms red into blue into green and so forth. So, yeah, the different types of charges relate to the different types of interactions which explain, give the rules about how they interact. All right. So let's change Tack a bit. Uh, what is the nature of antimatter? Well, that is actually related to charges, funnily enough. Oh, please back, tell me more. Well, back when they first did the equations, when Paul Dirac did the equations for an electron, then found out it worked equally well if the electron had um, a positive charge. And so he you know, theorized that there would be a positive electron, which he called a positron. And the mass was completely consistent. Then they discovered these things actually exist. So antimatter is basically the opposite charges of the matter particles. But they're not just opposite charges. They're opposite charge, but also spinning in the other direction, moving in the other direction. So the opposite of a left-handed electron is a right-handed positron. Um, That's why they can combine and create kind of energy. So they're like sort of mirror images of matter. Yeah, that's right. Do they have little uh, beards (laughs) to show that they're the evil matter? It's even better than that. Uh, When when you're only looking at electromagnetism and you're looking at the QED, which is quantum electrodynamics, which um, Richard Feynman came up with, positrons are basically treated as electrons traveling backwards in time. Right. So that's a good another way to think of any matter. That's really cool. Is that they are positive matter particles traveling backwards in time. Okay, question seven. Is the universe, space, reality two or three-dimensional? Difficult question. Or is it 11-dimensional if you want to have super string theory? Um, we see three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, so I think that um, works well. You could do the maths and say you could transform into a different kind of, make one of those dimensions some other degrees of freedom of particles, this kind of stuff. But as far as I can see, the universe is what we define space and time. It is three-dimensional space. Okay, you're charging through them now. Okay, question eight. What's this holographic universe? That's the caveat to that kind of last question. Right. Because there is some theories that basically say our three-dimensional universe could be a projection from a two-dimensional hologram. There are some (laughs) mathematical theories that show that this works. Um, One of them is looking at the amount of information that the universe holds. It's basically so you could project the entire three-dimensional universe onto the surface of a black hole. Like if everything was to fall into a black hole, there's only so much information it can contain depending on the size of that black hole. And so it's constrained by the two-dimensional surface of the black hole. So the universe only kind of has two dimensions of information, even though it looks three-dimensional. That's a really spooky thing. But when you actually do the math and calculate how much information that is, it's a lot of information and we're not really going to bump up against that limit. So it's hard to say. It's an interesting idea, but whether it actually means anything in practice... Yeah, it's, again, it's doubtful. Okay, coming up to question nine, what is this Higgs particle slash boson slash field? I always thought gravity gave particles mass. 
gravity is just a force that acts on particles, uh, that acts on particles with mass so or with energy, but they still need to have some mass somewhere to interact with the gravitational field, and that's where the Higgs boson comes in. Interactions of particles with the Higgs field gives them their, their fundamental mass, although then they still get extra mass from E equals MC squared by having any energy, and that could be like kinetic energy or even potential energy being bound up inside atoms, etc., etc. Well done, Chris. Is there any last um, words of wisdom you want to impart? No, I just want to say thank you, wise guy, for sitting in those questions. If you have follow-up, please email. I don't think we'll go into more detail on air because everyone is looking kind of exhausted. (laughs) Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Well... Too often on Lost in Science, we relay reports about animal and plant extinctions or various ecosystems entering states of decline. So it would be good to hear a good news story about the natural environment. Sometimes it's good to have good news stories. It it? is, yeah. So it it might sound like this is a bad story at the start, but it gets better, trust me. (laughs) Uh, the York Peninsula in South Australia has a long history of environmental decline. Uh, it's been used extensively for agricultural purposes since European settlement and even for mining. So there's big mines on parts of it. Um, this had obvious impacts on the ecological systems of the peninsula. And around 27 species of mammal have become extinct in the area since Europeans arrived. Wow, that's a lot. It is quite a lot. But after 10 years of planning, a large section of the peninsula is set to become a wildlife sanctuary, beginning with the construction of a 17-kilometre fence across a narrow point on the peninsula. They're building the wall. They're bu- well, they're building a fence. They're yeah. building the fence. It's actually going to be along existing fence lines. So okay. they're not building a new fence. They're reinforcing fences that are already there. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's to... As it's a peninsula, that's to cut it off from the rest of the mainland. Yeah, basically to get onto the the lower part of the peninsula, you'd have to go around the fence by mm. sea, which a lot of things can't do, or you find a way through it. But foxes find it difficult to um, to captain boats. Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. there's not that many. So the main function of the fence is exactly that to prevent the movement of feral cats and foxes into the area, where at least. 20 animal species that were once found there will be reintroduced to the environment. So interaction of animals with the environment helps maintain the state of an ecosystem. So you can't just have plants in an ecosystem. You need animals as well. And they, you know, generally speaking, they co-evolve over millions of years. So if you take the animals out, then the plants start to decline as well. Someone needs to consume all that primary Production. That's right. Um, one of the first animals uh, to be reintroduced to the peninsula will be the woily. The what? The woily. Is that a type of coyote? No, it's a type of betong. <laughs> ah. So the woilies do a lot of digging, and that in turn encourages germination of native plant species. Ah. And then those native plant species provide a food source for other indigenous animals. So basically, they're the little gardeners of the, of oh, the ecosystem. Oh, that is very the cute. The woilies. I love the that woilies. name. Yeah. So they're digging also helps spread mycorrhizal fungi and other beneficial soil microbes. What, do they carry it around on their little well, they, claws or you know, something? Well, they get bits of fungus on their claws and yeah. they dig somewhere else. And it's the great. fungus starts growing there and, and other bacteria and other things. And obviously, they help with nutrient cycling and with breaking down organic matter. So they improve 
the uh, the, the plant growth environment. Can, Can I ask I... a question? Yes. Um, in the last 10 years that they've been planting, does that mean they've removed all of the invasive species, plants and animals? They have been trying to do that, but, yeah, they're sort of working towards that. But without a fence there, they'll just keep reinvading. Keep oh, right, okay. So they've got to start with the fence. What are the whirlies eat again? Um, they dig around in, in the soil, but I think they're looking for uh, little insects and all okay. sorts of other things. But they do uh, eat plant roots and things as well. I was going to say it's the same. The oily whirly catches the worm. <laughs> that doesn't work. Anyway. But they might catch worms. <laughs> um, so as well as herbivores, small marsupial carnivores called red-tailed fascagales. Oh, I love a fascagale. Will mm. be released, as well as a population of barn owls, which will help balance animal populations. So Watch out, fascagale. Yeah, there's got barn to be some owls predators being in there. Right on the loose. So the key to success of the rewilding project will be the exclusion of those feral pest species that disrupt natural ecological processes, and obviously some of them prey on... Native animals, so your feral cats and and foxes will tend to eat anything they can catch, generally speaking. Um, So many other areas are watching the project closely and are ready to learn from the process with an aim to replicate it in other endangered ecosystems around the country. Now, obviously, being a peninsula, it's kind of a lot easier to do this kind of project on a peninsula. Other parts of the country will find it a lot more difficult to, you know, the the larger the area, the bigger the fence line you will need. So the peninsula is kind of a good testing ground. How the, far? How much of the peninsula are they blocking off? So the final sanctuary will be about 250,000 hectares. So it's a pretty massive area. Um, and they're actually, it makes it one of the largest open range animal sanctuaries in the world. They're hoping that people will actually come from all around the world to, to look at it. It'll be like a tourist uh, destination when they actually finally finish it. So but, humans will be allowed to go there? Well, yeah, we can, we can still get in and okay. out, presumably, you know, gate with restrictions yeah. uh, attached. But, you know, it's early days yet. And it's, you know, it's a far cry from some other projects where they're talking about introducing. Tasmanian devils to the mainland to try and combat feral cats. But with the betongs and the quolls and the um, woilies that they let go in this new peninsula sanctuary, they have some hope that the natural ecosystem will re-establish. Well, that's woily, woily exciting. Mm, and some quality work. sustainability, the environment, climate change action and innovation for the future. All these issues and more will be explored at the Transitions Film Festival, which is happening around Australia. And today we are lucky enough to have the festival ambassador with us today to talk us through the program and some of the more interesting things happening at the Transitions Film Festival. Alanta Colley, friend of Lost in Science (laughs) and so many other things. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. And you are here in your role, of course, as the Transitions Film Festival yeah, ambassador. I am indeed. It's been it's an honour to be an ambassador for such an excellent film festival. Well, tell us a bit about the film festival. Uh, so Transitions, the whole concept is that every documentary, the 28 documentaries showing, uh, tackles a global issue um, that we're facing around the world and also global solutions. So it highlights, uh, you know, some incredible new technology, amazing sort of people coming out there with lots of innovation, um, very creative ideas about how we can actually tackle things like climate change and overpopulation, actually turn things around. So it's a very inspiring film festival. It doesn't pull its punches in terms of presenting you with 
the full science behind, you know, where we're at with climate change, uh, where we're at with sea level rise and these issues. But it, it doesn't stop there. It goes beyond there. It looks at some of those solutions that we're coming up with. And for people around Australia, when is it happening? What, what are the dates and, and where? Yeah, it's happening uh, in uh, Melbourne. It's happening from the 21st of February to the 8th of March. And then it's heading off to Sydney. It'll be in Sydney for the first week of April. Then it's heading to Brisbane, uh, Adelaide and Darwin. And I don't know off the top of my head which dates those are. But certainly um, if our listeners head to the Transitions Film Festival Website. website. That's it. Transitionsfilmfestival.com. We'll have all of the information you need. So how is it different to other film festivals? I know there's an environmental film festival as well. It's quite cutting edge. So 24 of the 28 documentaries are Australian premieres. So we'll be seeing it for the first time. Hot off the press for some of them. Really exciting. There's a lot of breadth to it. So it's not focusing in on one particular technological aspect or scientific aspect. It's got conservation, endurance of human spirit, technological advances, everything from, you know, people who are running across India to some of the best science we've got around um, carbon sequestration and other things. Uh, There's a look at the economy and and different models of economics moving forward. Um, So sort of questioning a lot of the sustainability around some of the current day practices. And yeah, so it's a really fresh film festival. And I think you can sort of go there with a sort of confidence that you're getting some of the, the newest technology and the newest ideas that are out there. Now, as Festival Ambassador, I imagine you it would have been your responsibility to watch quite a few of their documentaries before the film yes. festival takes place. Yes, it's one of the most exciting things to receive a link and get to see a film that hasn't even been released in Australia yet. Totally. Yeah. So what have, what have been your highlights? I have been lucky enough to see the opening night premiere of Ooh. Point of No Return, which we're still selling tickets for, which is super exciting. It's a documentary following the team who launched the first ever solar panel Powered plane around the world. And I think we get fairly exposed to the idea of firsts, but this was hair raising. I mean, <laughs> the the plane weighed less than a car, uh, but had the wingspan of a 747. And you could actually break one of the solar panels on the wings with your finger. It was that fragile. <gasps> and it's like a string of fairy lights. If a single solar panel goes out, the entire lot goes out. Aren't we like past the point of those lights in sequence? Like, was all serious? <laughs> it seems like that would be a good idea. Um, that's that's the whole thing with the with the documentary. It took seventeen years to get the plane to the point where they could actually fly it, oh and my the sort of critical point is actually the five nights that the plane has to go over the Pacific. So that's <gasps> five nights of continuous flying for one pilot through some of the most treacherous weather. <gasps> And it has to happen at a specific time of year when there's enough, like, enough light to actually charge the batteries on the plane to get it through the night for five nights in a row. Otherwise, the entire thing plummets into the Pacific Ocean and, and you know, incredible consequences there. And the theme that really comes out of the whole documentary is you've got this team of engineers who are running the calculations, constantly testing the risk factors of weather, of what the technology can do, of the yeah. state of the of the pilot even. Also, I guess, migratory bird collisions. <laughs> All of the above, unpredictable weather patterns that can change in, a, in an instant, up against 
this team of adventurers who are, who are trying to break a world record, who are trying to prove that something that has never been done before is possible. And one of the key themes of the documentary is, you know, people who fails stories disappear into history. You only hear of the victors. So, you, you oh. know, <laughs> it is on the edge of your seat watching. I cannot recommend getting to opening night uh, high enough. So for those of us um, who might have frayed nerves, <laughs> who might not be able to take on that that sort of level of anxiety, are there any other um, highlights that you would recommend? Yeah, sure. They're not all as hair-raising as that one. I'll be moderating a discussion for Ranger to Ranger, which is um, it's about Thin Green Line, which is a great not-for-profit that focuses on eradicating poaching around the world. And their approach is fairly simple. If you look after the rangers in countries around the world, you can support them to prevent poaching. And so the documentary actually follows a group of Indigenous rangers from Australia going to Uganda and to Kenya and meeting rangers working in some of the most treacherous environments there, protecting mountain gorillas, protecting elephants. And it's this amazing opportunity for cultural exchange between two different groups and also for them to to learn what they have in common, but also what they have uh, not in common, which is uh, very different. So like the sort of Ugandan and Kenyan rangers have to deal with poaching on a daily basis and put their lives on the line. So it's a very treacherous and very noble job in a lot, a lot of ways. So, and this um, the the group of Indigenous Australian rangers that went over to Uganda. They were um, also accompanied by singer songwriter Dan Sultan. That is correct. They? Yes, yeah. You may even see a little bit of his singing songwriting in the documentary itself. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> That's always a good reason to go along to a film to see Dan Sultan. It is. It is. <laughs> Uh, another highlight is Bikes of Wrath, and I quite like this one because it's it's really a, it's quite a human story. It's these five Australians. They've got uh, $420, five bikes, and they take uh, 30 days to cycle 2,500 kilometres from Oklahoma to California, and they're recreating the journey of the Grapes of Wrath of the Jode family. Steinbeck. Yes. Right. Yep. Wow. So $420, (laughs) is that equivalent um, in today's money? Yes, it's equivalent to the $18 that the family in the book had to make that journey. Um, (laughs) But the journey is about recreating the pilgrimage from the Dust Bowl to the Promised Land of California. The real highlight of this documentary is the generosity of ordinary people. And they talk a lot about... um, People in the red states, or as Hillary Clinton called them, the deplorables. And the experience of the five cyclists just captures how generous people are across the country. And a quote from the book is, if you're ever in trouble or need help, go to poor people. And it's just that sort of... That paradox that people who have the least are often the most generous. Alanta Colley, Transitions Film Festival Ambassador, thank you so much for coming into Lost in Science and talking us through some of your highlights. But there are other documentaries that are going to be shown all around Australia, so I would definitely recommend everyone to head to transitionsfilmfestival.com to check out the program in Sydney, Adelaide, Adelaide. Melbourne, (laughs) Brisbane Brisbane and Darwin. Darwin. (laughs) Thanks, Alanta. Thank you.
And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science, of course, is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, we would love you to keep asking us questions. We have so much fun with this. So please get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci, as S-C-I, at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. Or you can just listen to us. You can find us on your friendly podcast. App. If you have the opportunity to give us a rating and review, please do so because that lifts us up in search rankings and other people can find us and share the science love. Or you can just find us on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au on demand. Or you can listen to us wherever you listen to us now. Same time next week when Stu, Claire and Chris will get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.